Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here. Um, if you're new here, we are so glad that you're here. I would love to greet you just right back there in the foyer after the service. If you actually look at the, uh, the founding documents of Trinity, you're, you would find that Tim Keller's name is all over that. He was a pastor at Hopewell, Virginia, and he was at the ordination service for uh, Skip Ryan, the founding pastor here at Trinity, as well as, so, so it's just really fun to go back and, and read those. It's fun for me as a historian. I know that might not be fun for you, but. So what do we do thousands of times each day and give very little thought to, besides breathing? What do we do thousands of times a day and give very little thought to? Speaking. The average, the average American uh, speaks about 6,000 words a day. Now, to give thought to all those words would be impossible. We speak all the time. Now, this day, we're actually in a, a sermon series on Ephesians 4, and we're, we're asking this big question of what does renewal look like? What does it look like to be renewed in Christ? What is the salvation that he has given us? And last week we looked at anger and the renewal that forgiveness offers anger. This week we're looking at words. So let's jump into our passage. I wanted to look at the whole of what Paul says about our words in chapter 4 and 5. So I've kind of mashed together um, a couple of verses. So, but the, the, the core of it is verses 25 through 5 through 2. Because it's kind of mashed together, I encourage you to look on in your bulletin rather than in your Bible. So we're going to begin in 4.15, and then we'll jump to verse 25. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In verse 4 of chapter 5, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And then finally, verse 18 of chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord as your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, let the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. 
have three points for you today. And the first point is bad words. Bad words. Americans are swearing more than ever. Psychology professor Gene uh, Twinge compared the number of swear words published in books from the early 1950s to uh, 2000, the mid-2000s. And she found that Americans are swearing more than ever. In fact, some curse words that she measured for appear 678 times more than they did in the 50s. Multiply that by 600, whatever the occurrence was. And that's just books. That's not a measure of the cesspool that is the internet, right? Or Netflix. Now, I say bad words, and you probably think of the four-letter expletives. The naughty words that you learned in second grade and then employed with impunity behind your parents' back. But to reduce bad words to a dozen swear words is problematic. You see, there are all sorts of other words that kill and destroy. You can raise someone to the ground in a matter of a few syllables without ever technically cursing. It's like a good, a good Jane Austen villain, right? They never curse, but they sure know how to let the complaints and judgments flow freely in Jane Austen. Perhaps you've heard, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that old adage could be, nothing could be further than the truth, right? Words hold tremendous power to damage and destroy. I do not remember the many hits that my brothers gave me as a kid, but some of their words, they still rattle around my head, my memory, especially the bad words. Words have the power to haunt us. The truth about words is that they're profoundly powerful. Profoundly powerful. They create worlds, and just as easily they destroy them. Will you marry me? Versus I want a divorce. Words are human constructs, yes, but those constructs, they do things. I love you. I'm sorry, we declare war. And that power of words is by design. The Bible lays out the creation of the universe in Genesis as a creation by the word, the Lord speaking, and it's made. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now humans do not make things ex nihilo like God does. But we are made in the image of a speaking God. And so our words have power as well. In fact, God gives mankind the vocation of naming his creation. Naming. We continue the work of God by naming and categorizing, bringing new meanings out of creation. And words were originally a means of good until they weren't. In the Garden of Eden slipped the serpent who proceeded to use words to tempt, to deceive, to lie. And all of a sudden, bad words enter into the world. The serpent blatantly contradicted God's word. That same God 
who created the starry host with that word, he said that word that God made everything with, it's a lie. And Adam and Eve decided to believe the serpent rather than God. Bad words. And perhaps this is why Paul addresses lies first in his warnings about bad words. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. The truth. Lies have no place in this new creational reality that Jesus is making. The serpent was a liar. When we lie, we're going back to the garden. We're going back to the fall. We're going back to the the root of what went originally wrong. In fact, Jesus calls the serpent, the devil, the liar, and the father of lies. And so when we fail to speak the truth, we're being like the devil rather than the Lord. But you've been redeemed, Paul says, from the devil and from his deceit. In verse 25, he actually quotes from Zechariah. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor is a quotation of Zechariah 8, 16. And in Zechariah, Zechariah is about the return from exile. The Israelites who were exiled out of their country were in Babylon. They come back. And the Lord says, you are a new people now. You're a new people. And part of your new way of life is to speak the truth. Do not speak lies. That is the way of the devil. And so Paul is saying, just like, just like God brought the exiles out of, out of exile into this new land, this new creation, there were new people. So Jesus has done that with you, and so it's improper for you to speak lies. So you must speak the truth. Now, you may say, sure, 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 don't lie. I've known that since I was like, what, three? Three years old? But do you do it? Like, how truthful are you? Where are you tempted to lie? Last month was tax season. When someone invites you to an event that you don't want to attend, you say, oh, we're busy, when you're really not. When you're really sitting at home watching Netflix. These little white lies fall short of the beauty of truth. They seem innocent enough, but these social greases, they leave a stain on our soul. For, for me, it's, oh, I didn't see you called. And I really did. God has always called his people to speak the truth. The ninth commandment, right, the ten commandments, this is the sum of the moral law. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness. We read an excellent exposition of that from the Heidelberg Catechism. It requires true speech. You shall not bear false witness about your neighbor, against your neighbor. It's judicial language. It's courtroom language. But what's true in the courtroom is true of all of life. Lies are bad words that violate God's command. But Paul mentions another kind of talk. That's corrupt talk. Another form of bad words. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. 
Now that Greek word of corrupt, for corrupt, it refers to fish, fruit, and other foods that have spoiled, rotted, and become putrid. You know that, that leftover Tupperware that you, that's been in your fridge for like three weeks, and you open it up? That, that's what corrupt language smells like, sounds like. It, it, leaves, it leaves residue in your mouth. Has your conscience ever checked you after a conversation? You realize that rotten talk, you've been engaging in rotten talk. You've said something or heard something putrid and wrong. Our words hold the potential to actually grieve God. When they are corrupt, they grieve God. That's what Paul says in verse 30. Right after he says, do not speak corruptly, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That, that's the power of our words, that they can actually grieve the Lord, that they cut us off from him when we use corrupt talk and lie. And then in verse 31, Paul goes into anger, which is not surprising. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You see, anger presents a temptation for corrupt speech. Who are the people that you speak the most corruptly to? Maybe your family? <laughs> your loved ones? Right? Think, think of how you talk in that situation when you're in the midst in the, in the heat of a, a fight. Right? And you throw down a, you never. Really? Never? <laughs> or you always. It's, it's corrupt. Anger twists our perception of reality. We want to feel right and the other to be put down. You scream, I hate you. You say terrible things that you immediately regret. Anger is a place where our words go wrong. And Paul moves from anger... And when we look at chapter 5, verse 4, he, he gives us another category of corrupt talk. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. No crude joking? Now, Paul must just be a, a joyless Puritan, committed to making sure that everyone has no fun. Crude joking. Now, Paul is actually... Switched topics in verse 3. It's not in your bulletin. But he switched topics to sex. He says, don't even name sexual immorality. And then he goes on to say, let no, let, there should be no filthiness or foolish talk. So what's going on? Is, is Paul just some sexually repressed proto-Victorian? Let, let me answer with another one of the Ten Commandments. The third commandment. It says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, we moderns don't really understand this commandment. Why can't we yell out his name when we stub our toe or are angry? It's, it's just a syllable, right? It has no meaning. It's just sound. No. Because his name represents his person. I'd be really weird, be very offensive, if every time I was angry, I yelled out my wife's name. <laughs> right? I've turned her name into a curse word. And that's not who she is. Right? The respect to the person is respect to the name. And, and God is the same. Our respect for God comes out by how we speak of him, by how we speak of his name, when we speak of it. He is to be revered. And just like I would never do that for my wife, God is infinitely, infinitely worthy 
of reverence in ways that you and I aren't. He is to be revealed, uh, revered, a fact that extends to his name and all such things that he has designated as sacred. Now, our culture has very low tolerance for anything sacred. But there are many things that are sacred that we must hold with reverence. And sex is one of these things. Paul actually returns to sex later on in chapter 5. And he's going to call it a mystery, a profound symbol of the gospel. Sex symbolizes the true unity and love that Christ has for the church. And so there is this sacred meaning to sex. And therefore, it must be properly revered. Filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking about sex dishonors the divine meaning of what this gift truly is. Corrupt speech. So bad words, bad words, lies, corrupt talk. So I want to linger here a little bit longer on speech that straddles both lies and corrupt talk. And that's gossip. Now, Charlottesville gossips like a small town. Charlottesville gossips like a small town. And I found that gossip is a particularly Christian practice. We're very good at gossip as Christians. I I think the word for Charlottesville is enmeshed. Enmeshed. Everyone is up in everyone else's business. They go to school together. They go to church together. And it's hard not to when you see them at school and at church or you don't see them at school or church, right? And gossip likes to fancy itself as virtuous concern. I just want to know how they're doing, right? Now, there are several problems with gossip. Um, Gossip is a kind of theft. Gossip is a kind of theft because you're talking, you're taking someone else's information that doesn't belong to you and sharing it with others as if it did belong to you. It's theft. It's stealing. It also violates the command not to bear false witness on several levels. You see, gossip is definitionally unverified. You don't know if it's true because you haven't talked to the person who it it is about. It's often speculative, which again falls short of the truth. You could be and often are spreading lies. One more belaboring here. I think the church, especially in an information age, we need to take the Ninth Commandment with the uttermost seriousness, not to bear false witness. It is so easy to bear false witness. In my sermon prep, I came across the funniest of quotes. The quote was, quote, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting its shoes on. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting its shoes on. What's funny about that quote is it is misattributed everywhere on the internet. Everywhere says that Mark Twain said that, when there's no evidence that Mark Twain ever said it. So a quote about a lie is actually a lie. (laughs) That's the world we live in, right? Facebook, Twitter, it's most of it is unverified. How do you know when it's true? Verification is a concept that we need more of in the church. I'm astonished at how strong Christians' judgments are of events that they were quite distant from and know very little about, and yet they speak with such confidence. 
How do you know that you're not bearing false witness? How do you know that you're not speaking lies? We must be very careful not to bear false witness. How do you know if he's guilty or innocent? How do you know? Which probably means that we should just talk less. Which would be a good practice to talk less. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, James says. We know so little, and our desire to know everything, it actually reflects this kind of God complex that we want to be omniscient. We want to be the judge. That's not who we are, though. Okay, so that's bad words, bad words. Corrupt speech, foolish talk, anger, and bitterness. That's our native language. We speak that so easily. It's not hard to speak that. And that was Paul's point earlier in chapter 4, which Chris preached uh, to us two weeks ago. He says, this, this natural way of, of, of speaking, of living, is not the way that Christ lived. There's a new way that we've been baptized into, and that is the grammar of grace. That's our second point, the grammar of grace. So we are to put off the old self, the old language, and we've been remade in the image of Christ, and he has touched our lips so that we begin to talk differently. One summer in high school, my family lived in Mexico City for a month for my dad's job. My dad spoke Spanish, but after him, I was the next fluent in our family with my two years of high school Spanish. Um, so I became the default translator. You probably, you probably know what this is like, right? Speaking a language that you don't really know. It was not natural. It took great effort to speak. I had to slow down, think, learn on the fly. I had to remember a whole other grammar and vocabulary. Like, okay, what, what, what's the verb tense here? That's learning a new language. And the same is true of, of learning how to speak this grammar of grace. There are new rules of grammar that we need to learn. And we see that principally in verse 29. Look at verse 29 again. This is actually worth memorizing. So I'm going to ask you to read it with me. Verse 29. Let's read it together. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So this grammar has a new goal, to build up. Only speak to build up. Now in Ephesians, there are two primary ways that it talks about the Christian life. And the first is in this, this age, this, this growing up, this maturing. In fact, Ephesians 4.15, it says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So when we're, when we're speaking to someone, we're trying to help them grow, to mature into Christ. The, the other metaphor so often in Ephesians is this building up of a temple, that we are the temple, that we are holy dwellings for the Lord. And so when we speak, we're trying to make a person a better, a more holy residence for the Lord. That's the aim of our grammar, our speech. Paul says... Let no cartoon talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion. Let's take that, as fits the occasion. This grammar has a case-by-case -case wisdom. Now, some of you are truth warriors. I, I, I am one in recovery. Say what needs to be said and change the world with the truth. 
That's my mantra. Now, you will do much damage if you do not learn when and where and how to speak the truth. Sometimes, I, I see this in a small group, right? Some, uh, the, the prayer time will come, and someone confess a really important need. Like, like, and all of a sudden, the whole small group, instead of going to prayer, all of a sudden, eight different people are giving advice to this person. That is not the occasion for that. It's not the occasion. Advice might be needed, but hearing eight other people tell you what you need to do after you vulnerably shared a need will likely have an adverse effect. It doesn't fit. We need to learn the wisdom of, of what, what truth needs to be said at what time. Proverbs 25.11, it says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. I love how the message translates it. Listen to this. The right word at the right time is like a custom-made piece of jewelry. Like that's what truth is. When you can get as fits the occasion. This this grammar also it speaks from love. We read Ephesians four fifteen that speaking the truth in love. If we don't have love, we probably don't need to be speaking. In fact, when we speak truth without love, it sounds like an offensive symbol crash. To love is to genuinely and earnestly want the other's good. And then this last phrase in, in verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's, that's actually what God is going for, that our speech becomes a gift, a gift of grace. Words that give grace. Now that does not mean that we always need to be positive, right? Grace confronts. Grace and love say, I love you too much for you to keep doing that. You're destroying yourself and you're destroying others. But the way that we do it is with this merciful grace. That is what the Lord is going. That, that's this grammar of grace. That's the new way of speaking. As I think about this, this is fits the occasion, is giving grace. I, I can't, I cannot help but think of how Hillary Swinson speaks. She's been the ministry coordinator at Trinity for me for the last couple of years. She's been a communication director. And this woman, when she speaks, it always fits the occasion. She's not arrogant. She does not speak out of hand. She's shy with her wisdom. And yet, when you come to her, she knows how to speak. And she's answered so many of you in her emails with, with Ephesians 4.29 grammar. As fits the occasion of speaking grace, speaking love. So, so what language are your ears attuned to? What is your heart language? Like what scripts are running in your mind? I always screw up. I'm an imposter. I'm working so hard, but it's never enough. I will never get what I want. Or maybe your script is, I'm fine, but it's then. My boss, my parents, my kids, my spouse. If they could just pull it together, then I'd be okay. If these are your scripts, you are never going to speak the grammar of grace. If these are your scripts, you never. You will instead demand and punish others when they fail. Your conversation will be about you and your validation before man. You see, whatever scripts are at your core, whatever your heart language is, it's going to come out in your speech. That's what Jesus says 
in Matthew 12, verse 33 and 34. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the same kind of thing. It's the same principle here. Whatever is in your heart, whatever is in your mind, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. So what is at the core of who you are? Now, in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul is telling us here to speak like our daddy. And what he just told us, what we just unpacked of how to speak, to give grace, to love, is sophistication. That's actually how God speaks to us all the time. That is his grammar. If you want to hear God, he is a God who speaks grace and love. He always speaks to build us up. His speech is never false or unsound. It always comes from love, and he delights to give grace and to speak grace. I experienced this in my own life. Um, I had a rough driving experience growing up. When I turned 16, in a matter of one year, I wrecked two station wagons. Two station wagons in different ways. That's how clever I was. Threw the rod in one, and I, uh, I somehow hit a car in its uh, driveway. Um, <laughs> and I remember when I hit the car in the driveway, I was angry, and so I kind of just floored it and lost control of my Volvo Turbo. I really miss that Turbo station wagon. I remember when the, um, I remember my dad coming up to me. I, I've, two cars, <laughs> two cars. We only had two cars for our whole family. My dad would ride his bike to work and gave me the car. And I remember coming home just so devastated. Like I was like, <laughs> God is never going to give me a car ever again. And I remember my dad. I mean, there was some anger, but there was grace. My dad said to me, Jesse, that's not how God works. That's not how God works. There is grace when we fail. That's how God speaks to us. Are you listening to him? And we know that's how God speaks to us because we have heard that in the most resounding speech that God has ever made, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The word of the cross. The word of the cross. That is a word that gives grace. That is a word that gives grace. Listen to, to chapter 5 verse 2 again. Paul says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of the cross is a word of grace. And if you believe in Jesus, if you surrender your life and your words to him, then that word of grace becomes the truest thing spoken about you. The truest thing spoken about you. At one time, yes, you were unworthy and weighed down by guilt. You were a self-righteous imposter demanding perfection from everyone else while you failed at yourself. But the word of the cross, it declares you're worthy and righteous and innocent and humble. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus gives you what he has. He takes what you have and gives you what he had. That is the word of grace. That is God's grammar of grace, is the cross of Christ. 
And it's a new language, a new way of hearing and speaking. Friends, you will never speak grace until you've heard grace. A child learns a language by listening to his parents speak to him. So if you don't know grace, it's time to listen to God speak grace to you. But how do we grow in fluency, right? Maybe we've heard God's grace, and maybe we're still not gracious in our talk. So how do we grow in fluency? That's our last and final point, and that is drunk talk and spirit singing. Drunk talk and spirit singing. Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is really curious, because Paul contrasts drunkenness with the filling of the Spirit. And it's a telling contrast. Paul says, don't get drunk. Fools get drunk. Because in drunkenness, you let your guard down, which allows the flesh to reign. When you're drunk, you're very vulnerable to other sins. It leads to debauchery, the NIV says, meaning that it leads to indulgence and sensuality and gluttony, illicit sexuality, fits of rage. Like, drunkenness is not good. In Vino Veritas, you've probably seen that in one of the thousands of wineries around Charlottesville. In wine truth, right, you lose your inhibitions with alcohol. Alcohol exposes a person's true core, whether it's anger or frivolousness, self-pity, lust, grandiosity. It spotlights the old man. But being filled with the Spirit is different. When under the influence of the Spirit, you become more inhibited in all the best ways. You operate with self-control, love, joy, and peace are what characterize you. Now, this is not the only place where alcohol and the Spirit are associated. Today is Pentecost Sunday. If you remember, Pentecost Sunday is when the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And there's this incredible outpouring of worship and revival and preaching. And the people watching these disciples are saying, hey, they're drunk. They're drunk. Because it was so obvious that something was not normal. The way that they were acting was not natural. It was supernatural. They were filled with the Spirit. And it was coming out in their love and grace for each other. They're under the influence of the Spirit. Now, how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? By your speech and your song. Here, too, is similarity with drunkenness. Drunkenness alters one's language. You can tell that someone's drunk by how they talk. They slur their speech. They're boisterous. Something about alcohol makes you want to sing, too. We just sang a mighty fortress. The, the tune of that is a German drinking melody. Why do karaoke nights happen in bars? Right? You just got to sing. Even those who are terrible at singing. The quiet office mouse is suddenly belting out, oh, we're halfway there. Right? Drunks have songs in their heart. And the same is true of being filled with the Spirit. You can hear the Spirit in the way that someone talks. The Spirit-filled person speaks words of life for building up. They do not bear false witness. They value the truth to the extent that they admit when they don't know the truth. They practice discretion and they guard each other's reputations. They speak wisdom. And they too have songs in their heart. Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Do you hear that? Like, they've got this melody in their heart, and they just can't stop. They're going to let you know. That's what being filled with the Spirit is. It is the joy of the Lord, the joy of His salvation, the joy of that grace, that grammar of grace, that just begins to spill out, that you begin to speak differently, that you're singing songs to each other. Remember, remember how God is singing grace over us. He wants us to participate in that. And one of the simplest speech forms the Spirit speaks in us, this new way, this grammar of grace, it it produces thankfulness. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. We have realized that everything, everything that is good and beautiful and true, of which we are terribly unworthy, has been a gift of grace. When we begin to speak thankfulness, we're beginning to learn the grammar of grace. So friends, how do we grow in fluency of this grammar of grace? We need to listen to the Spirit. We need to listen to the Spirit in His Word. When you have spent time with the Spirit, you will speak differently. And this is not just reading your Bible in the morning and kind of going off your day. This is reading for fellowship, reading for meditation. That is when you begin to be filled, and it's going to overflow. It's going to overflow. Remember, friends, we speak grace when we hear grace. Let's listen to the Lord who speaks grace to us in Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we are a people of unclean lips. We ask you would take our bad words. You would take the lies and the deceit. Would you take the corrupt speech, the bitterness? And Lord, would you crucify it on the cross? We pray that you would put a new song in our heart. Thank you, O Lord, that we are saved. That the Lord Jesus is who he said he is. That he has resurrected not only himself from the dead, but us. We want to speak and sing that song now and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen.